I had never heard that, um, but I can certainly say that I can't think of another um, another song that would best prepare us for tonight's message. I was with you several weeks ago, and I started a sermon that uh, I said had 12 points to it, and I did six uh, at the beginning of September. I'm not going to do six more. Uh, I condensed it a little bit, uh, but let's review, since it has been such a, a, a little time, um, we were in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and tonight we're going to pick right back up uh, with where I left off the last time we were together. And so to refresh our minds, let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people praised them highly. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a large crowd came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest took action. He and all his colleagues, those who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the city jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple complex and tell all the people about this life. In obedience to this, they entered the temple complex at daybreak and began to teach. So last time from this passage and a few others, we began to look at what is this life all about? That was the question we talked about then, and that's going to be the question we talk about tonight. What was this life all about? We talked last time about, first, this life has a mission. We are to go and be ambassadors of Christ on mission for the gospel. We are to take the message that God has provided redemption and life to a dying world. Secondly, we saw that this life is full of power. If left to our own abilities, we know that we don't have the power to fulfill our mission. It's an impossible mission if we have to do it on our own. But Jesus promised that His followers would be given power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And that is what enables us to take the gospel to every corner of the earth. Thirdly, we talked about how this life is one of unity. First, we have unity with our Lord. He is our closest companion and as a life, the life of a follower of Christ is one where His will is the only will that matters, as the gardeners just beautifully sang. And we unify our lives with His life. Then we see that we are given charge to be unified with our Christian brothers and sisters. We are not intended to be at odds with one another. Conflict comes, but we deal with conflict in love and in truth with one another. And so we are supposed to be unified in that love and in that truth. 
And then last time we talked about how our unity leads us to fellowship with one another. We are called by one God to proclaim and believe in one gospel and through the power of one spirit, we are to bring glory and honor to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And this oneness brings us to realize that we don't have enough in common with the world to have fellowship with the world. We may have relationships, we, we may have co-workers, and we may have friendships and companionships that are in the world, meaning lost people, unchurched, unsaved individuals, but the world cannot understand you or support you or encourage you or love you like the church can. Because we have this unity and oneness and an understanding grounded in the same thing, the gospel. The church is to be a place where Christians can come and get their greatest needs for friendship and intimacy met. Then we saw how the scripture depicts this life as one of opportunity. We talked about how there's not room for boredom in the mission of Christ. There's not time for vanity and laziness. The life of Christ is one of endless opportunities to be useful to the mission. Trust me. And you can take me up on this this week if you want. But you don't have to look far to see that even in our own church, there are many opportunities waiting for people to become involved. Every day you wake up is another day that God has given you with the potential for many opportunities to be a blessing to someone else and to show someone else the goodness of Christ. And then lastly, last time, we talked about how this life is one of obedience. And that's kind of where we're going to camp out and, and kind of flesh obedience out a little bit. So we, we, we think of obedience and that word, that, that idea has been hijacked by many people uh, in, in our churches. I would even say that um, the idea has been taken by men who have manipulated the concept for uh, and they've distorted it and skewed it for their own personal gain. When I was in Henderson, um, staying up late, I couldn't sleep. My dad was still at the hospital. Jamin was asleep. And I turned on the television and I was flipping channels. And I came across uh, a man in a very nice suit with a marvelously you know, stiff head of hair. It made me a little jealous. But... You know, he was on there and he was sitting down at a desk and he was quoting scripture. And, and I, so it caught my eye when I heard the word of God on television. I stopped and I started to listen. But what this man was, was claiming is that if his viewers would faithfully and obediently do what the Lord was telling them to do through his broadcast and send their seed gift of $49.95, he guaranteed that they would receive the miracle blessing they had been waiting for. And he claimed it all in obedience to the Lord. Others have taken the principle of obedience and twisted it as a tool to regulate behavior. The idea is that if you behave a certain way, then you'll be right before God. And if you don't behave a certain way, if you don't believe exactly this way, if you don't hold exactly these doctrines, then you won't be right before God. And the emphasis is placed more on the outward evidence of this idea of, of obedience. 
And what these preachers ignore is the fact that God is not fooled by the arrogant or self-righteous attempts to be moral. And then you have many men and women who teach their congregations that obedience is an outdated idea. There are no absolutes. What is right for one person may not be right for another. What is wrong for one person may not be wrong for another. And so let's just leave people to make up their minds for themselves. Live and let live and leave people alone. This preaching of first Christian mysticism, do this and God will give you this. This hard-handed legalism that puts a yoke of slavery on believers when the gospel is meant to liberate and free believers. And then there's this relativism that, that is taught. And all three of these are, 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 are taught and preached in different, different ways with different languages. But what they have done is they've resulted in a church that is but a shadow of the magnificent and glorious bride that she should be. And so tonight I want to close out the thoughts on, my thoughts on these, this passage that we've been talking about by focusing on Christian obedience. And I hope to be brief. Actually, I, I promise to be brief. But I've, I've condensed those six points into four aspects of obedience for us to examine and to consider tonight. And, and in keeping with the question, what is this life all about? I want to suggest to you that this life is one of obedience through mercy. Look at Matthew 9.13. Jesus is, is recorded in Matthew 9.13 9, when it says, But when He heard this, He said, Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call righteous, call the righteous, but sinners. So this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees after He had called, you know, the wretched, despised, and the unlovable tax collector named Matthew. And of course, you know, Matthew is, is this great sinner, and, and, and now he's sitting at the dinner table in Matthew's house, and the Pharisees are astonished, and Jesus knows exactly how to speak to their greatest spiritual deficiency. And He says, I desire sacrifice, not mercy. See, Jesus knew that that the, the days of sacrifices were soon to be over. That He would fulfill the need for sacrifice and, and that He would finish the work of redemption on the cross. And now in response, He tells us that it is mercy and not sacrifice He desires. Mercy is born out of a grateful heart. Mercy flows from the one who realizes, as Brennan Manning states, I am lovable only because He loves me. And that the good news of the gospel of grace cries out, we are all equally privileged, but unentitled beggars at the door of God's mercy. This life is one where mercy is received, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is experienced through God's patience and determination in that the good work He began in us, He will complete. And then in turn, we exhibit this mercy we have received when we feed the hungry and give the thirsty something to drink, take in the stranger and clothe the naked and visit the prisoner. Mercy is bestowed upon us. Our redemption is 
is found in God's mercy and we show mercy as part of God's plan to bring redemption to others. Secondly, this life is one of obedience and persecution. Now, we don't have time to look at all of the the many verses, many quotes in the Bible that urgently warn Christians to expect persecution. I think we could probably spend every Sunday morning and every Sunday night for the rest of this decade you know, with, with expository preaching on all of those different verses. We could write countless books. In fact, countless books have been written about how the church should deal with persecution. We could hear testimonies from missionaries abroad and, and, and the, the persecution that they face. And you and I could sit around the dinner table or coffee table and we could talk about the many ways we feel we are being persecuted even in this country. But all in all, what we need to realize is that in the face of persecution, Christ has not called us to a life of comfort and ease, but one of being hated just as He was hated. And despite all of the things that could be said and written about persecution... I believe that we've missed something in recent years. The game has changed a little bit, hasn't it, in this country? Let me, let me just say this. In comparison to the believers throughout the rest of the world, I believe, and this is just my opinion, that Christians in America, in, in comparison, are hardly persecuted. We need to realize that we are no longer the home team And we're not going to be the home team again. Our response to those who would seek to silence our gospel should be one absent of whining, finger pointing, and assuming attitudes of victimization. We must resolve to run the race set before us with a renewed passion, urgency, and intentionality while remaining unfazed by the fact that our fellow citizens are no longer cheering for us but would gladly celebrate if our fellowship ceased to exist. That's just the reality of the world we live in. I don't like it any more than you do. But how do we respond to an increasingly hostile culture against Christianity? And let's look at just one example. It's found in Acts 4, 23-31. And this is just one example to where we can draw so much wisdom and so much instruction on how this church and every church should brace ourselves and ready ourselves with a proper biblical response to persecution when it comes. After they were released, they went to their own people, the church, and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever 
your hand and your plan had destined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healings, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. This is what we see there. We see no whining. We don't see any complaining. And we don't see any crying foul. It's like, you know, there was no... There was, they, they were trained. They, they were taught by, by Jesus Himself to expect what was coming. And so... This is how they respond. They respond with greater dependence on God. They turn to God. They lift up their voice to God. They have more trust in His sovereignty. Did you catch how many times they say, this is your plan. You've done this. You expected this. You predestined this. You knew this was happening. And they increase their urgency in prayer. They came together and they said, God, fill us with more boldness. You know, Consider their threats. Know what they're saying they're going to do to us if we don't stop. And fill us with more boldness so that we can continue to do the mission. And so next, we see that this life is one of obedience through service. Maybe one of the most frequently used verses to support this concept is found in James. You know what it is. James says in his letter, What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can his faith save him? You see, we are called as a church into salvation by the grace of God. Absolutely. We all agree. And as a result, we are equipped with the Holy Spirit. And we have access to the Holy Spirit's power. And the reason we are given access is because we are called to serve. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Let me give you another example. If there is a woman or a young girl who is contemplating aborting her unborn child, and we cry out, no! Don't do that! That's wrong! You're going to regret it! You'll be sorry! How dare you! But we don't help her find other solutions and resources. And don't make sure her many emotional and physical and material needs are taken care of. What good is it? What James is telling us is that it is not enough to simply tell others what they should do. First, we must model it in our own behavior. And then we must go beyond feeling sorry for the suffering of others and we must be people who do something about it. We must get involved and I'll just go ahead and tell you getting involved means getting dirty. It means allowing yourself to be inconvenienced. Let me put it this way, it means putting on a towel, getting on your knees, and doing that which no one else in the room is willing to do. We are called 
by a God who serves to be a people who serve. So let us serve. Lastly, this life is one of obedience through repentance. Now in the last few weeks, God has arranged for our pulpit supply preachers to come and they have all spoken sometimes at great length about repentance. I don't think that that is a coincidence. We have revival meeting scheduled to begin next Sunday. And we have prayed, we have talked, and we have studied. Now, it is time, if you haven't already, to repent. So let me close with just a few remarks about repentance. First, you cannot repent if you are not willing to be honest. You cannot repent if you are not willing to be honest. If you are not willing to stop justifying, stop rationalizing, and stop minimizing the gravity and the weight of your sin, you cannot and you will not repent. Repentance, I liken it to, to this, we came to believe that our lives had become unmanageable. That um, famous line from the first step of the 12-step program came to, uh, we admitted that we were powerless over fill in the blank and that our lives had become unmanageable. It's, it's, it's an admission, uh, uh, admission of honesty about your condition. And, and I, I fear that many of us we get into this routine and this mode of, of minimizing and, and because the, 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 outward, the, the outward effects of our sin really hasn't caught up with this yet. We think that we can keep putting it off or we can, we can keep managing it. We can keep controlling it. But you can't control the sin in your life any more than I can walk a, 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 a wild lion on a leash down Hearts Bridge Road. I can't do it. And neither can you. We must be honest about our sin. That if we were able to handle our sin, if we were able to, to, to get a grasp on our sin, Jesus would not have had to have come. The system of human beings trying to control their sin and manage their sin was so broken that the Son of God had to come and die. Our sin is serious. Our sin... Is something we cannot lie about before God. Until you are willing to be honest, you cannot repent. Secondly, you cannot repent if you are not willing to confess. Healthy things do not grow in the dark. And confession is the sunlight of spiritual growth. Let me say that again. Healthy things do not grow in the dark. You know what grows in the dark? Cockroaches. Mold. Infection. Disease. Bacteria. Confession is the purifying light, the sunshine that enables us spiritual growth. Confession 
of our sin is like flicking on the lights in the kitchen and watching the cockroaches scatter. Have you ever tried to clean house in the dark? If you're not willing to confess your sins, you cannot repent. They go hand in hand. Thirdly, you cannot repent if you are not willing to change. I, I really don't want to be so cliche, but I know that I'm throwing a lot of them out there. But if nothing changes, nothing changes. See, the Bible tells us one very important thing, and it's this. That while the Holy Spirit is our power, we are the ones told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is up to us to do the changing, to, to change the behavior, to change the relationships, to, to work on the attitudes. God is not going to fix you in the way that many of you are waiting for Him to fix you. It's like an alcoholic saying, I really don't want to drink anymore. I just wish God would take the bottle out of my hand. Or the drug addict who says, I don't want to be a drug addict anymore. I wish God would just keep me from going to the crack house. We have to choose. And until you are willing to change, until you are willing to let go of that thing, or until you are willing to start doing that thing. See, because sin goes both ways. Sin is... Oftentimes, the things that we do that we know we ought not to, but sin is also the things that God in His great plan for our lives calls us to, and we refuse. We hide from it. We run from it. And so until we are willing to change, and that's hard. That's hard because that means I've got to deal with me. I've got to be honest about who I am. I've got to look myself in the mirror and not try to make up stories for the way I am. I've got to just see it for what it is. I've got to confess it to God. I've probably got to confess it to someone else. And I've got to change. Because everywhere I go, there I am. And if I'm the problem, I've got to change me. We do that. Do not mishear me. I'm not talking about self-reliant moralism, you know, behavior modification. I'm just telling you the plain facts of the experience that I've had with the Lord as I have cried out time and time again, God, would you just would you just rewire me? Would you just not let me think this way anymore? Would you just take this away from me? And what does he ta- what does he say to Paul? He says the same thing to me. My grace is sufficient for you. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then lastly, we cannot repent if we are not willing to be helped. You can't repent on your own. You were not saved under your own power. You were not sanctified under your own power. And you cannot repent under your own power. And there's two dimensions to that. Obviously, we must depend more on God. We must fall before Him on a daily basis 
confessing our sins from an honest and humble position before God. And, and, and we, we must be willing to change and to do the actions of love that propel us into a more like, uh, a likeness of Christ. But, but church, we, we're, we can't do that without His help. We can't do that without going to Him in those ways. And I will suggest this to you. You can't do it without other Christians. You cannot live the Christian life of being sanctified and becoming purified into the likeness of Christ without honest, open relationships of confession and accountability with other Christians. We have got to stop hiding from one another and realize that we are all here for the same reason. We are broken. And just as the, the, the clay does not look up at the potter and say, why did you make me this way? The clay cannot put itself back together either when it's broken. We need each other. If nothing else, Maybe our revival is more about us coming back to unity and fellowship with one another in biblical repentance than anything else. So that as the song said, we can be purified under the fire of God's conviction and under, under the grace and under the mercy He provides for us. And, and we, can, we can sharpen one another. As iron sharpens iron. And, and, and we can hold one another accountable and speak truth and love in one another. Maybe this coming week as we enter into revival, it's time for us to get honest with one another and to let go of some of these grudges. And to confess some of our sins that we've been harboring resentments and unforgiveness. And, and, and maybe it's time for us to, 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 to openly confess that we have, we have a problem with, with, with gossip, or we have a problem with this person or that person, and come to one another in love and unity and be revived as a church. I don't know. But maybe that's what the coming days have in store for us. But regardless of what our revival is going to be about, it will not happen if we do not repent. If we do not turn away from ourselves in the way that we want to do things, become honest, confessing, unified Christians with one another, next week is, is just going to be some meetings. And I pray that that is not the case. I'm going to end with this. I love the, the irony sometimes we see or, 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 or sometimes whenever you read the Bible and you see the, um, how, how God is just kind of so exact and so pointed. And He gets His message across in such a simple way and we, we often read over those, those points. So let me set the stage. We're dealing with Peter. We're dealing with the first pastor of the first New Testament church. He's preaching his first sermon and he's about to offer his very first invitation in response to the people saying, what do we do now? And you know what his very first word is? Repent. 
the very first word of the very first invitation to the very first sermon in the very first church by the very first preacher is repent. It might be that important for us to not miss it, to repent. So tonight's invitation is an invitation to repent. I told you that we would come forward as a church like we've done in the weeks past on Sunday nights, but I wanted to save it until after the sermon to prepare our hearts perhaps to to come once again, one more time before we have revival meetings next Sunday and to repent. And so again, I would ask you if you are willing and able to come to the altar for a moment of prayer, to publicly repent, to pray for our church, to pray for the lost in our community, would you please at this time come and do that and we will have a time of prayer followed by observing the Lord's Supper. So if you would, please at this time come.